You're listening to Get Informed America, the only true unfiltered show that's fighting fake news and finding common ground. Now, here's your hosts, Dave Oakenquist and Rodney Johnson. Hello and welcome to Get Informed America, where we break through the mainstream media box to deliver you real smart news. Hi, I'm Dave Oakenquist, and joining me is the editor of Informed American, and he also just happens to be the smartest person I know, Mr. Rodney Johnson. Rodney, how are you? I'm good, Dave. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me. Rodney, just you know, say hello to everybody, and I got a question for you right off the bat, since this is our very first episode, I'm really excited, but we want to kind of set the table for everyone, Rodney. What does it mean to be an informed American? That's a really good question, right? It, it, it speaks to the whole reason we do what we do, and I have uh, done a lot of research, economic research, political, cultural research for really 30 years now, and once you start doing that, you find that a lot of information comes to you with a slant. Yeah. It comes from, you know, one side, the other side, whatever side, right? And what people really want is the information. They want the research. They want the, the basic, right? Give me the building blocks so that I can make an informed decision. And so that's why we created Informed America, so that people could get the story without that slant on it, and then they could make their own decisions. Well, are you suggesting that the mainstream media has a bias, Rodney? <laughs> we all have a bias, right? Everybody's of got course. a bias. Mine comes through, yours comes through. Uh, but what we're trying to do is kind of reach through. And people notice that our stories always have a source. They always have a place that they came from. And so, yeah, I might put my opinion on there from time to time. Yeah. Uh, but what we're really trying to do is reach through and grab that information about things that are in the headlines so that you can make better informed decisions yourself. Now, Rodney is the smartest person I know. That means I am not. Uh, I'm not even all that bright. The one thing I do, and Rodney, you and I have worked together for uh, maybe going on 10 years. And if you really kind of distill, you know, I did uh, as a research analyst and of course doing video work with you, Rodney. But if I would describe my job, it was essentially keeping up with, in a sense, current events, and at least in our focus and paying attention to all the stuff that's going on in the world. And, and as you know, there is, a, there is a filter out there and you kind of have to cut through it. And, and in this way, what we do here is bring the news that's important to our viewers. And uh, certainly one of the things, one of your bugaboos, Rodney, is political correctness. Same with me. And the phrase you said, I believe, was it kicking it to the curb? And I think I like that. <laughs> and, and that's what we want to do, right? We want to, people get excited about the words, right? They, they want to turn something off just because somebody used to turn a phrase or they yeah. referred to something in a certain way. They're like, well, that's kind of silly, right? We still want the information. And so uh, we, we've gotten to a point in society, or, or some people have, to where they'll stop listening because somebody used a certain term, which is kind of antithetical to what we are as Americans. It's supposed to be, say anything you want. I am free to tune you out or pay attention as I choose, but you're free to say it. You may end up standing in a room alone by yourself because nobody cares, but that's <laughs> the way we vote, right? Is yeah. by saying, we're going to shun this person not we're going to, you know, throw stones at them and roll their car over and beat them with sticks. Now, that's, uh, you bring up the, it's essentially a First Amendment issue, and that's been one that's been gaining more steam. It, it essentially, debate, the, the debate sort of becomes the letter of the, of the First Amendment versus maybe the spirit of the First Amendment, right? I mean, uh, and maybe we can get into that. It's probably not, although actually there is a term that we are going to hit in just a bit that may uh, kind of relate to that. But I think that's an interesting uh, ongoing debate and one we'll certainly hit on uh, in the weeks to come. Yep. Uh, Rodney, the other thing I want to mention, and to all of you watching, I want 
all of you, I want this to be a part of a conversation. And uh, if you go on Informed American, and we have a bunch of stories there that, that Rodney curates uh, and edits for, for all of you. And there, there's a comment section and it's very active at spots. Also here, whether uh, you're watching here on YouTube and on Facebook, I want you guys to comment. And that's really kind of how we all learn, isn't it, Rodney? By sort of communicating with each other, finding out information that you maybe not have uh, been aware of before. And that's a way of be- becoming informed. Well, and that's an interesting point, right? That's the way we learn, but it's also the way we sift. And so we can't dismiss that point. I see comments that come across many different websites that I travel on and certainly even our own, where I look at the comment and think, that's stupid. (laughs) But I don't write that stupid back to the person, you know, on whatever website. What I do is look at it and think, I now know I'm probably going not to give as much weight to that person as I did in the past. That's the whole point, right? Feel free to say it. Do what you want, but then we're free to make our decisions about it. Absolutely. And we want to foster that conversation. And that reminds me of something I heard about the 2016 election here, not to digress too far, but it was essentially, I don't know who, I can't give credit to who said this, uh, but it was, they distilled the 2016 election as essentially the article versus the comment section. And that was, you know, Hillary Clinton representing the article and Trump voters uh, representing the comment section. I thought that was very fascinating. And if you've noticed, comment sections have been going away (laughs) recently. And we are not doing that here at Informed America. We want to uh, keep that conversation going. Yep. Absolutely. So Rodney, with all of that said and the table set, I'd like to first run down through the topics we're going to cover today and then dive right in. So I was looking here. We've got, of course, the coronavirus ravaging uh, the United States and the world. And now we're getting real economic impact. Uh, The federal government has... uh, taken action. Some say too late, some say not enough, some say too much. Uh, But Congress has passed two bills. Uh, Now we're looking for a third. Uh, The White House took a number of executive actions as well. The Federal Reserve has instituted monetary stimulus, again, uh, shades of 2008. Uh, We've got uh, an order from Governor Newsom of California ordering everybody to stay home or else you're all going to die. Or at least 56% of you might get infected. Who knows? Uh, also, <laughs> word, and some non-coronavirus stuff that's been going on. I know there is a little bit of it. There's the Democratic primary going on. I've got some interesting polling data from uh, Rasmus that I'm going to go over. Uh, some Mueller Russia investigation news. And we get uh, some news on the Supreme Court regarding immigration. So we're going to cover all of that. But Rodney, let's get back to the top here, to our first topic, the coronavirus and the federal government response. As I mentioned, uh, last week they passed, uh, I believe they're calling it phase one. It was about a little over $8 billion bill. This week they passed phase two that the president signed. That was $100 billion. And there's just a bunch of stuff in here. We get some free testing for the coronavirus, expanded uh, really just economic support for things like SNAP, or what used to be called food stamps, uh, uh, family and sick leave, Medicare funding, unemployment insurance expanded. What did you think of uh, the Congress, their, what, what they sent to the president's desk of these last two bills? It's fine for what it is. The problem is that it's, um, there, there are programs that implement and roll out over many weeks and months when what's going on is an immediate need. And so, you know, you talked about the programs with the unemployment, SNAP, and increasing funding. There's some Medicare funding in there as well for actually testing to be free testing, free treatment for people, whatever. That's all great, uh, but that's not what's going to turn the tide. And not of the virus, and this is something I try to keep front and center, 
we are not dealing with the virus. We're dealing with the reaction to the virus. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with these preemptive moves that the government has made, governments large and small from the federal down to cities uh, that are saying, hey, let's stop all commerce essentially uh, by stopping people from touching each other. And then let's look at how we're going to rebuild that commerce. And the short answer is you cannot. And so there are a lot of things people are talking about, sending everybody a thousand bucks that aren't going to help. Because if you're sent $1,000, what is it exactly you're going to buy? You're not going out to a restaurant. You're not going to the bowling alley. You're, you know, there's just, you're not going to Disney World. Well, how about a mortgage payment that you, maybe you lost your job and you could at least make a, maybe, maybe not cover your entire mortgage, but uh, for a couple of times, that, that, that could be significant for some families. There's absolutely no question about it. But what percentage of the population is that? And so you, you have to start looking at what we're doing. We're, we're really going after something that requires a scalpel with a broadsword. And the best example is one of the first things President Trump did was stop interest from accruing on student loans that people are paying on, as well as the ones that, of course, they haven't started paying on. Mm -hmm. Say you've been out of college for 15 years. You're a lawyer in New York. You're making pretty good money, but you're still paying down that $200,000 in student loans from Columbia Law. Yeah. Suddenly you don't have interest accruing on that loan. You still have to make the payments, but your overall loan payments are going to be smaller, not monthly, but in total. I don't understand how that addresses this. And so there are different ways to do it. And I think what we're really doing is pushing down the U.S. economy very hard and then looking for a way to bring some of it back. And that's really hard to do. Well, things like uh, expanding medical uh, sick leave for families, stuff like that, that's got to help in ex expanding unemployment Absolutely. insurance. Now, it's not enough to probably cover the bills, I'm assuming, even if you can get some extensions on that and some extra help. Uh, the question is, Rodney, what's the, what's the safety net or is there one? Could there be one? And if not, then what? Well, and that, that's just it, right? How do you, at the end of the day, the question is whose dollar gets replaced and who pays to replace it? So I have a child here in college still, the other two are out of college, and so that college has moved online. They're not sending me a tuition reimbursement, and it was not cheap yeah. because they've now moved online. They're like, oh, well, see, we had to. It's like, well, wait a second. So what you're saying is me, the person who paid for the service that's no longer getting it, has to bear that responsibility. And so when we look at restaurants, of course, the best example everybody's using, we essentially told all restaurants to go to delivery only. What do you tell the wait staff? They're sitting at home now. They don't have a delivery job because it doesn't take all of them to do that. And so how do you get the money to that exact person and where does it come from? People say, well, it comes from the federal government. How do you find them? How do you make sure that you've recreated everything that they had? Is that our responsibility? I'd say, yeah, we have some. And how long does it go? And so it's really a problem, a sticky problem of finding those people without spreading it to everyone and then eventually, I think we're going to end up paying for it as taxpayers. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. And so there's two pronged approach. One is to sort of help uh, workers and businesses. The other is to actually some of the things in this bill were to fight the virus itself, uh, which was allowing a couple of things like allowing doctors to cross state lines and allowing some uh, experimental medicine, giving you an option if you wanted to, maybe not proven, but hey, if, if things aren't looking so good, you have that choice. I think that's, that, that's good. That's something. And then more travel restrictions. We closed the border with Canada and uh, you know, just trying to limit uh, who's coming in and from where. Is that, that's not enough either, right? So what, what do you do? It's not going to work. At, at the end of the day, we have to recognize, and this is the difference, you know, flattening the curve, talking about 
trying to make sure not as many people get it at one time so we don't overrun the medical system. Right. We're going to get it because we don't have a vaccine for it. And even if we had a vaccine, we're not going to get the vaccine to 325 million Americans in the next week or two. We can't even get testing kits to them. So the, the issue is, how do you slow the transmission to the people who are most at risk, which is the population essentially over 60 uh, and those who have pre-existing respiratory health conditions? And so that we're, we're trying to, we're, we're really coming at this with a huge response for something that I'm still not sold requires that. Now, I get that it's devastating for that particular population I just talked about, but what we have right now is a virus that has, you know, killed a couple of percent of the people who've gotten it, but we only have numbers on those who've gotten it from a very small group, the ones we've already tested. We're only testing those people that are showing symptoms. We know that the regular flu influenza infects about 40 million people a year and kills about 4,000. That's just in the United States. It infects about 400 million people a year around the world. And so this virus has infected a couple hundred thousand that we know of. Chances are it's infected well over a million and a half, closer to two million. Yeah. They just haven't been tested. They recovered. We know the ones who died. Those numbers are out there. And so the deaths are, are set. But the number of people who got sick and then recovered, they're just kind of out there walking around. And by the way, they're immune to it after that. And so I think what we're going to see is the denominator of this ratio grow fairly dramatically as we get more testing, which is going on in the United States right now. The number of deaths remains the same. So the mortality rate or case fatality rate, as they call it, CFR, drops into the normal range for other viruses. And then we're going to be standing around looking at each other and saying, wow, we shut down major portions of our economy for this. Is this an outsized response? I'm not saying that we should discount what it means to people who are older, who are more at risk, and this could be devastating. I'm saying we're going to have to ask that question. Quick thing on that, Rodney. I've heard a suggestion that it's possible, uh, and there's no real way of confirming this, that the virus was already in the United States for longer than we thought, and we just didn't know. Some people got the flu, and it, it was an unusually uh, bad flu season, and it's possible that some of it, and maybe looking for a little bit of good news here, that maybe the virus has sort of worked its way through the country in some way. Um, just, I don't know. I mean, we don't know if that's possible, but just, just off chance that, you know, because people do come from China stuff like that so in this interconnected world uh, but you know may, maybe that might explain the low death rate so far i don't know it, it certainly could have um I, I would think we would have seen an abnormally high number of deaths as the people at the at-risk population those over 60 or with pre-existing conditions yeah. from the regular flu and it would have set off some warning bells as to why that was going on in that population Got the normal flu hits everybody i mean you get kids you get you know those you know 29 to 40 you get the elderly population the coronavirus seems to be bypassing children. Not that they don't get it, but they really get a very mild version or don't even know they have symptoms at all. They're asymptomatic. And so this one's unusual. Now, Ronnie, I want to go back to something you mentioned about, you know, is it a possibility that we may have overreacted with regard to shutting down the economy, essentially, is what we're doing. Yeah. And all of that is true. Um, and everything you said about the flu is true. But there are some very real political considerations going on. And this is a political show. We want to take it from that angle, which is 
the price of inaction. Uh, you know, the president is being reelected. I know it's not all about the reelection, but partially it is. Uh, and how the public perceives him, uh, that's something that's always, uh, through any major thing that's going on in a crisis, it's not just fixing the crisis, but also the public's perception of your management of the crisis. So, I mean, how do we, how do we sort of take that into consideration? Well, I, I like to think that our, our, our site, our information flow, and our show is really about everything, not just politics. Right, right, right. We do include that. Um, and, and everything is looked at through a political lens when you are near Washington or near an election, right? And we are. And so you have to ask yourself, uh, what does it mean, this response? Well, first of all, clearly the president uh, said some things about it not being that big of a deal at the beginning, but it's now clearly taking it very seriously and approaching it in a very presidential way for that. Uh, but on the flip side, what we're doing on the economic side is we are dramatically reducing economic activity, which is killing the financial markets. I mean, we're down 30% in less than a month, 30%. And when you look at how far we've retraced, we've actually taken away the gains that were made during the Trump presidency. And so we've given back more than three years of stock market growth in just one month. And if it doesn't come back in some meaningful way before the election, then one of the main pillars that he stands on when he says he's been good for America, being growth in the financial markets, growth in people's retirement accounts, is going to be gone. And so, man, talk about, uh, you know, doing what you see as the right thing here, but then it hurting you over here. That's, that's what's going on. Certainly. And it's not as though this was like uh, the great financial uh, crisis that happened uh, 10 years ago or so, where there was, you know, essentially bad policy and bad practices going on. This is a global pandemic, very, very different circumstances. And it's going to be interesting to see how voters react when they take that into consideration. I'll tell you what, I'm afraid to look at my 401k balance right now. So I'm just going to pretend this is happening. You should be. And, and everybody said, oh, you know, you let it ride, let it ride, let it ride. Well, how far do you let that sucker ride down? That becomes yeah. a question. And we have to remember, as you said, you know, there were bad policies. Um, there's some real reasons for the great financial crisis and mortgages. I still blame the rating agencies, um, but that's a whole different show that we can do one day. Um, this is self-inflicted, you know. We, we, got a, we got an infection in our toe and said, let's chop off our leg and stop it. And so th that's, we have to reflect on that level of reaction here when this is over. And uh, as I've written elsewhere, as I said, the influenza, which I know, this, is, this seems to be more severe than influenza, but it's looking like it's as severe as SARS, MERS, and some other things, H1N1. At the end of the day, we're going to have to ask ourselves, is this reaction correct for this type of virus? And if it is, that means what we did for H1N1, for SARS, for MERS, and other things was not correct. And we should have essentially shut down the economy for those as well over the last 20 years. Or were those reactions correct? And this is a wild overreaction. And because the two are not compatible, we're going to have to decide what we did and hopefully learn from this and, and do it differently the next time because there's always going to be a next time or else we can look forward to this sort of just massive dislocation the next time we get a virus. Absolutely. And our modern economy is not equipped to deal with these kinds of uh, uh, shocks in the supply chain, things like that. Ronnie, this is just pure panic, right? I mean, it, it's just a, the degree to which you agree, agree that it's, it's justified or not. But to, to sort of run with your analogy, the problem is when you see everyone else chopping their leg off because they have the bad toe, you start to go, 
I may need to chop my leg off too to save myself. That's kind of the problem. Yeah, and, and you know, I wrote flippantly somewhere and, and probably, you know, get me in trouble that this will be known as the toilet paper virus. <laughs> um, because why, I still don't understand why people are buying toilet paper except that other people are buying toilet paper. That's right. Uh, and so when you see everybody buying it, you're thinking, I may need some of that one thing. <laughs> you think, I better grab a little. And then you become part of the problem, not because you thought it was a problem, but because you need to get a little bit of that for yourself. You don't want to be the jackass that doesn't, the only one without toilet paper. You don't want to be going to your neighbor trying to trade them, you know, 20 bucks for a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> but the people who make toilet paper have said over and over, there's plenty. We don't keep it in stock because it's so stupid cheap and it takes up a lot of space, so it's not profitable. But whenever you need more, we're just going to make a little bit more. So yeah. the, the big worry there is that people have bought so much, they're going to be stocked for the next three years. Certainly. I want to know what all of you think. Is this panic? Have you grabbed the toilet paper? Are you ready to chop off your leg because of a bad toe? Or you know, what, what are you feeling? Uh, what's going on on the ground? Certainly with all these economic all these businesses shuttering and this starting to really ripple across the country, the, the consequences of this. Well, I don't know. You heard a comment in the, uh, hit, sorry, put your comment in the uh, section below. Love to hear what you think. Rodney, let's talk a little bit more about solutions. Let's talk about what might be on the horizon phase three. You mentioned maybe sending checks directly to people. Uh, also saw something come out of uh, Mitch McConnell's office that may be in the form of a rebate, which I don't know if that's basically the same thing. Uh, a couple of the things they're floating. It's uh, this is like a trillion dollars, by the way. Hello, Mr. Deficit Hawk, I'd like to get your thought on that and all of you watching. <laughs> I mean, it just keeps piling on. Well, we got $300 billion for small business loans, $150 billion for other distressed industries, maybe you're thinking restaurants, travel, or uh, tourism, that kind of thing. Who knows? I mean, everything at this point, retail. And then $50 billion for the airlines. I mean, when that, I don't know if it was a CDC guy that said I would not get on an airplane. I mean, just <laughs> yeah, down. Dr. Fauci. Uh, and, and so there's some things in it. And it, it's still the same point, right? Almost all of this is loans, except for, you know, payments to individuals that are just a check. If I'm a restaurant owner and I'm, you know, clipping $10,000 a month in revenue, I'm paying out this, I'm paying out that, I bring home, you know, $3,500, $4,000 a month personally. So, you know, things are okay. I have zero revenue if I shut down completely, or my revenue is probably less than half if I went to delivery. And so for three months, that's what I have. Yeah, let's call it three months. <clears throat> I'm barely making enough to pay my personal mortgage, much less the mortgage or lease on my restaurant. If I get a loan, I still have to pay it back. Even if it's at zero interest and payments are deferred, don't start for six months and then they last you know, seven years, call it something crazy. It still means that we're putting that burden on that restaurant owner for something that, you know, the government said, hey, we need to do all this. And that's, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong because that's really hard to figure out where it should come from. Yeah. Should, we, should we nationalize that burden? And, and that's the thing that we have not discussed yet. Should we nationalize the burden for that restaurant owner down the street for what we're forcing him to endure for whatever period of time this is? Yeah, curious uh, what everybody watching thinks. I mean, yeah, should we should we take this on collectively as taxpayers, or is it up to every business owner to kind of sink or swim depending on it and hope for the best? I mean, that's that's really the, the debate, Rodney. But there was some there was some good good news that came out. The Maryland Governor Hogan uh, is now allowing liquor delivery uh, to to homes. Was that was banned? That was Texas. They said uh, they can do it with uh, restaurants can deliver alcohol as long as it's part of a food order. And so I wonder how many people are ordering a loaf of, you know, French bread and a six pack. 
So, uh, a bag of Fritos. <laughs> uh, Rodney, there's also a suggestion from President Trump that if a company takes out takes bailout money from the federal government, that the government may want in return an equity stake in that company. What do you think of that? Talking about getting internationalization. Uh, that was floated during the financial crisis, and I don't think it's terrible as long as you set parameters around it. You know, it's non-voting stock um, that will be sold in blocks over a period of time to where the government's not a long-term owner of, you know, American Airlines yeah. or uh, Boeing or something. But the taxpayers should be given a chance to get some money back on that. And that was one of my biggest problems with uh, the, the car industry when it got bailed out and everybody said, oh, you made some money. It's like, we made a nickel and we gave them $50 billion. And what we really did was bail out the pensioners, right? So um, I think there are better ways to structure that where we can actually get some benefit. Some suggestion that we may be seeing a, another political realignment or maybe the completion of the political uh, realignment from 2016, because what we're seeing, there's a, there seems to be a conflict um, Maybe and the president is almost leading. He's going full populist here, is, is what I want to say. And uh, you get some suggestions, even from some of his uh, his his allies, like Lindsey Graham. They're not on board with all this stuff. They don't want to send. It's more of a traditional. Uh, it's you know the Republican Party pre-Trump. They're they're still going on. They're not really. He's kind of dragging them along to that point with going full populist, send money to the people, kind of thing. Well, and, and you mentioned deficits and deficit high. That's because some of these people are actually looking further down the line, right? Yeah. right? Because our deficit for this fiscal year, which is you know October 1 through September 30, was expected to be $1.4 trillion before all this happened. And so if you add on another trillion dollars, say you get half of that spent in this fiscal year and then the other half next, you're looking at another five, $600 billion. So you're up around $2 trillion. But guess what? That's before you have wildly lower tax receipts because business stopped. Mm -hmm. That's you have wildly lower uh, personal income tax because unemployment shot up. And who's going to be paying capital gains tax for the next two or three years? And so I think you're looking at deficits that are two and a half, closer to $3 trillion, probably $5 trillion over this fiscal year and next fiscal year combined, way outside of what anybody expected and quickly getting us toward that $30 trillion mark for an economy that's retrenching from, let's call it $23 trillion in GDP, closer to, you know, 21, 22. And so I, I don't want to get too bogged down in all the numbers, but the point is the deficit's going that way, whereas GDP's going this way, and yeah. that's not what you want. That's some of why you've seen bonds be kind of weird, and particularly mortgages, mortgage rates trended higher over the third week of March. We went from about 3.5% on a 30-year mortgage to 4.3. That's, I know those aren't big numbers, but the move is big, and it's because banks are looking at it and going, wait a second, if we have deficits so huge, eventually interest rates are gonna have to go up, and we don't wanna be stuck with all these 30-year loans we made at these ridiculous low levels. And so there's a lot that goes into this other than just giving people money today some point we got to pay it back. And I'm telling you, informed Americans are going to be writing those checks to the tax man for a long time. Absolutely, Rodney. I mean, what are we looking at here? Are we looking at, uh, of course, deficits then become debt. 
Uh, we're looking at like a world 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 excuse me world war ii level kind of debt that uh, that huge spike that uh i mean that kind of a shock that then comes down or is this just a permanent thing where like you said we'll be writing checks till till we die i think it's i don't think it's permanent because i don't this is kind of a one shot done right it, yeah. it, the, the thing we haven't talked about in terms of solutions is medical solutions as we're not just sitting around, right? People around the world are working on both vaccines and therapeutics and vaccines won't be here for a year because you have to set them up, test them and do the other things before you can roll them out. However, if we get a notable therapeutic, something that knocks down coronavirus to the normal flu level or less, then you're going to see all of this unwind. And that's what that's what I've been kind of looking for and not counting on, but I think is going to happen faster than people realize. Because the, the Trump administration has done some really good things in lowering regulations and other areas. And they've told the FDA, let people go. If somebody has a drug that they can show is safe, which typically means it's been used for something else for years, and we know how it behaves in people's bodies, and they think it's going to work on coronavirus, go test that darn thing and see what happens. And that's, that's, that's what you want to have happen. And so there are a lot of drugs that's called off-patent that are being tried right now. Some of them didn't work. Some of the um, antiretrovirals for HIV, they were tried in China, they didn't work. The malaria drug that people, you know, who read our information and hopefully watching this show, uh, when they were in the military and were stationed in areas that had potentially had malaria, they had to take all those pills. Well, guess what? The French did a small test and showed that it was fairly effective against coronavirus. In China and South Korea, it's standard operating procedure to give people who are suffering with severe cases from this that malaria drug. It is cheap. And so there are things we can do to at least knock this down that I think would hopefully get rid of this panic and we can lift all of this crazy lockdown, quarantine, stay-at-home stuff and get back to normal so that the money doesn't flow out the door. The, the really big point is, oh my goodness, let's not spend a trillion dollars plus on something that's going to go away in less than 45 days. At least it's a big concern. That means virus goes away. It means that we're able to knock it down in people who are otherwise susceptible to really bad outcomes. Absolutely. I'm curious what everybody thinks about this proposed trillion dollar, essentially economic bailout uh, for the country. Should, should Congress pass this? Should the president sign this? Should we look for other solutions like, like Ronnie's su suggesting? I want you to let us know in the comment section below. Ronnie, last thing here on this, I want to mention Trump invoked the Defense Protection Act, which uh, involves uh, the federal government to kind of mobilize industrial production for things like masks, ventilators, and possibly drugs. I don't know if it quite works into that. Uh, maybe that's a path forward to say, hey, you know, GM plant and wherever. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, but maybe you can make, I think Elon Musk even suggested that he can make ventilators. Uh, stuff like that. Maybe that's a way of getting, I'll tell you what, I would love to have a mask. <laughs> I don't know. What they say uh, may not work. I would still feel better when I'm out in public wearing a mask. Um, I know you heard uh, and you told me before that you have a bunch, so maybe those can appear in my mailbox. I don't know. <laughs> well, in any event, Ronnie, what do you think of the Defense uh, Protection, Production Act, rather, that could uh, uh, maybe get things moving a little bit faster than normal? Well, first of all, I have a number of masks, but I have them because I do yard work with some pesticide stuff from mosquitoes <laughs> here in South Texas. I bought them from Home Depot two years ago. I didn't buy them recently. Um, and I'm not putting them in your mailbox. Uh, <laughs> I'd have to find the darn things. Um, the Defense Production Act, I, I understand why you, you do that, you invoke it, because it gives you power to do things if required. I don't want to get there. I don't think the president really wants to get there. 
Private industry is doing this. The Gene Maker 1083 started sewing masks. Guess what? Nobody's buying jeans. They have all these seamstresses around. They have tailors. They know how to sew stuff. They're making them. There's a distillery in Kentucky that said, well, we're not making spirits, but guess what? We know how to chemically combine things. They're making hand sanitizer. Excellent. So they asked the government, hey, can we do this? And normally a, process, a review process that takes three weeks took two days. They said, knock yourself out, get it on the shelves. And so I think it's a matter of telling people, Elon Musk, right? If he can make ventilators, go make a ventilator for goodness sake. Somebody should take CPAP machines, the breathing machines that people do yeah. uh, for snoring, and see how you can perhaps uh, turn those into something that could be used, not as a true ventilator, which intubates in your throat, but certainly something that helps you breathe a little bit better if you're having some mild symptoms from this. And so there's a lot of things that I think people are doing in the private sector. We want to encourage that instead of forcing that. Oh, absolutely, Rodney. And I mentioned World War II earlier in terms of debt, but that was also a time of essentially mass mobilization of society. And people are you know, using, doing comparisons between now and then. And that is great news. Hopefully we can you know, match what we did before and do even better. And the thing, though, to keep in mind is it's, we sort of assume that it happened overnight. But it didn't, right? It took some time. So we have to, hopefully we can get things done a little bit faster, uh, faster today than we did in the, in the 1940s. Well, and people, and, and, well, I don't know, people, right? If you look at what happened in the 40s, the spike occurred when we were trying to make airplanes and boats and very large things, right? Jeeps and other things. We started making material and selling it to Britain and some of what became the Allied forces in the 30s. Mm -hmm. So we were already moving toward that. And then we just ramped it up dramatically uh, because we, we, you know, we were going to defend ourselves eventually and then we were going to help the Allies. And so it was a different case. There's a real chance that we could, there is a chance, Rodney, that we can emerge from this as a stronger, more unified country because uh, we can certainly, we certainly need it right now, don't we? I, I think so, I, but I always think so, right? We had that, that moment of um, kind of community clarity after 9-11 uh, and, and it does come after you have things like this uh, where people step back and go, hey, wait a second, there, there are more important things than whatever I was fighting about yesterday. Ronnie, you are an eternal optimist. On the other hand, I, there's yep. a dark cloud floating over me. So I, <laughs> when I feel a little optimistic, I'll take it. So, uh, so Ronnie, let's, let's move on to the thing we mentioned earlier, which is California saying stay home, a full stay-at-home order warning that 56% of Californians could get the coronavirus. <sighs> you can't leave your house, Ronnie, unless, uh, you know, you unless within emergencies or you know, things like, I think you said, like, we can walk the dog or something. Now, are they gonna, how are they going to enforce this? <laughs> That's a good question. And Gavin Newsom said, you know, stay at home. And then he clarified and he said, look, walk your dog, take your kids to the park, play. Don't join 20, 30 other people on the beach for a party, right? Try to, try to use common sense about yeah. this. Um, but he said, clearly, he wants people to stay near their homes as much as possible, except going for food and medical and this, that, and the other. And people who have essential service jobs, you work at the electric company, you work at the water company, whatever. Um, he did give the, the police the power to issue misdemeanor citations, which, you know, you have to pay a fine. But he said, what we're really looking for is social pressure. We want people to be eyeballing each other in public, saying, do you really need to be out? Can you really go back home now? Because that's best for all of us. Um, I'm not a fan, uh, you know, infringing on uh, personal liberty is kind of a big thing for me. Um, I look at this and ask, is that really necessary? 
Uh, and clearly, I think that we should be asking people who deal with the elderly or the elderly themselves to stay at home and be very cognizant of whom they're around. But everyone else, how about common sense? Common sense seems to work a lot of times. Yeah. And I tell you, a lot of what we've done already, people now know the word social distancing or the term. They didn't a month ago. People are using a lot more hand sanitizer and the best of all, soap than they were a month ago. And so I think you're seeing a lot of the things that are just really not small, but consequential and easy steps being taken that are going to change the direction of this. Yeah, I'd love to know what everybody viewing thinks as well. I mean, do, what, do, what do you think about this order from uh, Governor Newsom? Should, does the, the, your state have the right to tell you that you essentially must stay home with, you know, with accepting some circumstances for infringing on that personal liberty? Or is, or is it in fact common sense to, to issue that stay-at-home order, at least temporarily? Now, this is that uh, we're seeing a lot of governments changing how they do things. And you mentioned that there might be possibly a fine uh, going on in California. In other words, you could actually find that story, by the way, uh, about California on informedamerican.com. Ronnie also uh, put out another story. Uh, this comes out of Philadelphia where they're just not really going to prosecute criminals. Uh, they're not going to, they'll maybe briefly detain and unless there's some sort of a warrant or whatever, or you're a threat, you're determined to be some sort of a threat. They will just kind of let you go to maybe get you later or... Yeah, they said that, you know, burglars and car thieves and even narcotics, if they catch you. Oh, I got the list. Hold on. I got narcotic offenses, thefts, burglary, vandalism, prostitution, uh, stolen cars, economic crimes such as bad checks and fraud. And, uh, and if you happen to have a warrant. So that yeah, bench warrants. And so there's a lot of killing somebody. Sorry, Rodney. <laughs> essentially, if you're not violent, they're not going to lock you up because they're worried about uh, you know, transporting it back to the jail and then causing a big problem through the prison population. Yeah. And so I understand that, but on the flip side, they're prisoners, you know, or, or they're, they're suspects. These are just suspects. They have not been right, right. You get caught uh, doing so something, yeah. The idea is, uh, you know, you, can, you kind of see where somebody would bring it up, but then wouldn't somebody else go, wait a second, that guy broke into my house. He stole my car. And you're saying, well, as long as I can verify who he is, validate his ID, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to issue a warrant for your arrest eventually, one day. Well, when's that one day? Is it, you know, four months from now, four years from now? I don't know. But if you look at it, these the cities don't have enough policemen to begin with. City budgets have been stretched for a long time. Right, so and everything is strained now. Yeah, so you're telling me the city of Philadelphia in four months is going to go back and use their manpower not to worry about current crime, which is going on four months from now, but to go deal with all this previous crime. Yeah, I'm not well, it's going to encourage crime then. That's the thing. I mean, do we need to start, you know, put, putting the shotguns outside of our windows if this is going to happen? Otherwise, you know, the cop comes up, you know, writes the thing and says, ah, that's coronavirus. So who cares? I mean, what's going on here? This is going to be lead to anarchy and chaos, no? Well, it is Philadelphia. It's not like it was the safest city to begin with, you know. Um, in Baltimore, I don't think they stop you unless you have a gun. And then, and even then, I'm not sure they stop you if you have a gun. Um, it wouldn't play in Texas. Uh, in Texas, there's a lot of people who already have guns, and you're actually uh, legally justified. I'm not saying that it's morally right, good, but hey, you know, we all get to choose on that. But you are legally justified to shoot somebody if they're trying to steal your car at night. They don't have to be hurting you. They just have to be going after your car. In the uh -huh. car. So <laughs> well, different states have different ways of doing things. Absolutely. Curious what you all think about uh, Philadelphia's decision to decline I mean, just let crime happen, I guess is what I want to call it. I mean, is this, is this the right move in the name of, 
I mean, you can't call it public safety, but I guess to just stop the, well, stop the virus from spreading within the detention centers, essentially? I got, a, I got a suggestion. How about we make everybody in prison take the malaria drug, just like we make everybody in the military take it if they're going to be deployed to one of these places, and then arrest them anyway? How about we do that? How hard is that? Yeah. Uh, well, that's like, uh, so we'll just use the prison population as test subjects. And also, uh, as uh, I guess, cheap labor, because I believe when the state of New York said they were going to, they had a way of making their own hand sanitizer. Maybe that came from 16 cent an hour uh, prison inmates uh, making that sanitizer. So they have, a, they have a workforce. They're doing that down here in uh, Texas as well. Fort Bend County is using um, county jail labor to uh, make and distribute hand sanitizer. Crazy. Uh, now, Rodney, let's uh, move on to uh, the Democratic primary. There was one in, it was a vote in Florida amidst all the coronavirus chaos. Uh, and the, the bottom line here, Rodney, is, is that Joe Biden has essentially captured the Democratic nomination. Bernie Sanders, uh, he's, uh, well, there was news that he suspended his Facebook ads. Uh, so that's a sign that things are starting to wind down with the campaign. And uh, if you go to predict it, uh, the, the, the betting site, Hillary Clinton now has a higher chance of getting the nomination than Bernie Sanders. Wow. <laughs> See, I mean, it's only like 5%, but. Yeah, yeah I, I find that amazing. But I, so Biden is the presumptive candidate. We can just kind of start and end right there. Tulsi Gabbard dropped out. She threw her support to him. So it's Joe Biden. So it's, uh, so, I mean, nothing there. I mean, we're just, uh, well, I, you know, here, I, I want to say this. For all of you know, Bernie and the political revolution, he kind of he kind of folds kind of at the end. I mean, I would expect a little bit more fight going from 2016 to today. Well, there's a, a gentleman I worked with many years ago used to say that pioneers get shot and merchants get rich. Okay. And his point was that the people who go first tend to have a bad time of it, but then the people who follow kind of have a path. Bernie Sanders won if his goal was to change the conversation. Because if you look at Joe Biden's policies today, he is markedly to the left of where he was even four years ago when he left office as vice president, and certainly 10 and 20 years ago. And so it is Biden's campaign uh, in 2016 that really kind of coalesced that story into something that was strong enough or loud enough to where other people started taking it on so that they would gather some support. Nobody discussed Medicare for all in a meaningful way yeah. in 2016. I mean, certainly Hillary Clinton's experience in 1993 really shut all of that down. Now, Biden is not for Medicare for all. That, that's true. But he's definitely for a public option. Yeah. And public option, boy, those were fighting words back in 2010 with the Affordable Care Act. And so I thought we were uh, 10 years ago, Rodney. Sorry, I mean to interrupt, but what, didn't, didn't we solve all? Didn't Obamacare take care of everything? And Joe Biden was a champion of that? No? There you go, right? So why are we talking about health care at all? Yeah. Um, but he would immediately raise taxes, uh, cap corporate taxes go up to 28% from 21. He would raise personal taxes back to about 40%. He would raise capital gains taxes to your ordinary tax rate. Uh, from what is, you know, 0, 15 or about 23 right now, up to 40%. Um, he has full-throated, uh, given his support to the Green New Deal, wants us to be off of fossil fuels uh, by 2050. And so there are a lot of things that he's talking about that never would have come out of his mouth 10 years ago. And Bernie Sanders is a big part of that, even if he doesn't get what he won't get, the nomination. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And uh, yeah, the Joe Biden of, say, 2008 is probably to the right of President Trump today. 
Well, President Trump uh, is in the Republican Party, but as Republicans said, you know, as he was moving toward the uh, nomination in 2016, he didn't fit the Republican package. He was, he was more of a populist, and he continues to be. Certainly. Uh, he, he, he didn't uh, get behind free trade, which is a big Republican thing, right? I mean, free trade and lower the barriers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he became a friend to the unions, uh, which, of course, was a big change for the Republicans because guess what? They weren't. Um, he is not a deficit hawk in any way, shape, or form. He's never met a dollar that he didn't want to borrow, I mean, given um, how he had run his businesses for years. But he wasn't. He didn't hide it. He's up front about it. He's a populist. King, the king of debt, I believe, or, or something was a phrase used. <laughs> exactly. And these are the things he said, right? I mean, it's not like we're making this up. It came out of his books. What do you all think about Joe Biden all but sealing up the nomination? What do you think of his chances of uh, defeating President Trump in November? Let us know in the comment section below. Rodney, I got some great uh, polling data that came out recently from Rasmus, and I know you always have an eye on, on their outfit. And they, they, they ask interesting questions and uh, spark some debate here. So I want to start off the top. 42% of Americans say that China should pay some of the costs for this global outbreak. Interesting. That's a very high number, Rodney, uh, putting blame on China. And, uh, and, and, and as we get, there's essentially a blame game going on here, which is China started accusing the U.S. military of what? Just implanting the virus in Wuhan or something like that? And yeah, showing up. Go ahead. Servicemen infected with the virus traveling through Wuhan started the spread there. Is, is there a disinformation campaign about it? Yeah, you think? I mean, you have like uh, Chinese ambassadors spreading this message. I mean, this is complete. Uh, right, right. This, this is official disinformation. Yeah, absolutely. Propaganda. Now, 28% uh, say that China blaming the U.S. military is an act of war. And uh, 21% uh, already believe China is an enemy of the United States. So the healthy percent there. But Rodney, this, this blame game going on here, you got uh, China now blaming the U.S. military and now Trump stepping up his use of the term Chinese virus, basically in response to China spreading that propaganda. What do you make of this? Now, it's made the mainstream media upset, which makes me laugh. Uh, but what is your take? I, I'm laughing right along with you. I mean, here we have this virus and we have this reaction to it. And, you know, we're closing down big chunks of the economy and we're worried about people who aren't going to be able to pay their bills. And what do we do with businesses? And, you know, and we have older people who are succumbing to this and perishing. And people in the press are, ask, are asking Trump about his use of the term Chinese virus when it was the people in the press a month ago who were calling this the Wuhan virus or the Chinese flu or the Wuhan yeah, this flu. This is not hard. You can't, even, you can't even keep track of your own stuff. I mean, CNN, CBS, NBC. I mean, you can go on Twitter and find screenshots of this stuff. You're literally calling it the same thing you're getting mad at the president for. I mean, this just blows my mind. And this is the kind of thing that informed American, I, I love to just, you know, point out, dismiss, and move on because it's silly, right? Yeah. We, have, we have called flus and viruses and diseases things from their point of, you know, presumed origin for as long as we've been doing this. And so, you know, we know, all know Ebola, it's a place for goodness sake, right? It was the place uh, that uh, it kind of started. And so the Spanish flu has an obvious name to it. And so a lot of them do. And so I, I think that sort of blame game is silly and, and I just move on from somebody who's worried about it. On the money side, it gets harder because, you know, you gotta look at it and ask yourself what's gonna happen the next time around. I'm, 
I'm not a fan of the way the Chinese dealt with it. Um, I, don't, I don't blame them for this virus showing up, of course, but then hiding the information, suppressing it, that sort of thing to where yeah. people didn't really know, that's the thing that really gets me. Um, I don't know what you do about it other than essentially keeping better track on the Chinese as you can and, and trying to distance yourself from them. Because what happens the next time a virus in a nation of 325 million people here in the United States kind of starts here and runs away and people start looking to us or guess what? Somebody's going to come up and go, hey, wait a second. If you're talking about uh, purposefully spreading something, I don't think the Chinese intend to kill people with it or anything, but purposefully spreading something for your own benefit, the very next question is going to be, what about climate change? Now, that's a whole different can of worms, yeah. but people are going to point out America got rich off of all this fossil fuel, and now we're telling other people they should be cutting back, or at least some people here are, and they're going to want some payment for that, which I am not a fan of. And so I kind of draw the line at that sort of, uh, that sort of thing. Absolutely. And tensions rising ever even greater between the United States and China. Who even knows what's going to happen with this trade war thing? But, you know, you make a really good point, though, about you're not blaming China per se, but they they were censoring information, not being clear about what was going on. There were doctors trying to get info out about what was going on the ground. They're censoring their accounts, putting them in God knows what kind of a hole. Uh, and, you know, you can go and here's, here's one. I mean, they've, they've fooled international authorities or, or in agencies. You, you can go to, there's a tweet from the World Health Organization at some point in the middle to late January that says Chinese doctors say human to human transmission of coronavirus unlikely or not happening, something along those lines. I mean, just flat out lying. Yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, what just that's, you know, the, 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 the misinformation, the lying, the denials, that sort of thing, and trying to, what, save their own face in front of their own people or something or, or, or over the globe. I find that very troublesome because it could, it no doubt, cost lives, Rodney. No question. But, but then again, did you believe him? Did you believe him in the first place? Yeah. I mean, what's the last news report came out of China that you looked at and went, wow, I believe 100% of that. <laughs> and so I, I think there's something to be said for, you know, you discount the sources that you don't believe are truthful. Yeah. Curious what everybody thinks of this blame game going on. And also, what's your favorite name for, for this virus? Is it the Wuhan flu, the Chinese flu, the Wuhan virus, the, uh, what was it, Rodney, the Kung flu? The Kung flu, because uh, people are Kung flu fighting. Yes, yes. And that's the one, of course, that be getting some people in trouble. Uh, I don't know. I thought it was a funny name. I don't know that I'm going to use it. No, not, not in your daily life. No. Hey, have you got the Kung flu? No, that's a real icebreaker. But, uh, Rodney, since we were debating about how people are kind of feeling about what's been going on with all these lockdowns, uh, Rasmussen also had a little bit of an answer there for where the public is, is citing. 80% agree with the travel bans you know, around the country. I'm, sort of, I'm surprised that number actually isn't even higher. Uh, 70% agree with closing schools. Uh, but there is a group out there, 26%, that say we are overreacting, which is interesting. What do you make of that? I'm with them. Uh, and so I, I know I'm in the minority because, of course, 26% is the minority of the population. Um, but as I said at the beginning of all this, I'm not discounting the risk to a certain population, you know, same ones older and those with pre-existing conditions. Yeah. But I'm looking at other things we've done, and I'm asking if this is going to be worth the economic pain. 
And I, I, I think when the dust settles, people are going to be, be asking themselves that same question. So. Absolutely. There's another one here, Ronnie. 25% say we should delay the November election. And I expect this number to rise uh, if, if this thing doesn't get uh, taken under control. If we're sitting here, you know, a month or two from now and we're in the same spot we are, there may be real calls to delay the, the, the election. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think it's premature. I think it's premature because talking about uh, the elections, you know, they're going to happen the second Tuesday of November today in something that tends to be seasonal. We don't know if this will be, but tends to be seasonal uh, that we're working on therapeutics and vaccines for, and then we've taken incredible steps to, to mitigate the transfer uh, by midsummer. We're going to have a lot more information. And I, I think it would be uh, very premature today to say, Hey, put off the election. Uh, so far away because that because it only happens on one day, right? I mean, of course, you can do absentee voting a couple of weeks ahead. But other than that, I mean, we're talking mid-October before anything really happens about it. We've got a long way to go before we have to make such a decision. Well, what about mandating mail-in ballot if we're there? I mean, maybe not cancel the election, but are we going to hear not everybody can use the post office? I don't know what the problem would be there, but because yeah, I, I just I don't vote for mail in, mail in, mail in so that's not a transition for me. <laughs> it, would, it, would, it would overwhelm the system. And you want to talk about hanging chads. Okay. You want to talk about a way to game the system in certain jurisdictions. Um, I don't know. It, it almost, and I'm, I'm not saying we do this, right? But just imagine holding the election just in the battleground states, right? Does California actually need to hold an election? Just call it for Joe Biden and move on, right? Are they, I think they're still counting the primary vote, aren't they? I don't know what it takes them like three months to get a final tally. I mean, goodness gracious, if that was a swing state, where would we be? But uh, you can identify, you know, the six swing states that we all know about. Three that, you know, are they in question? Not really, but maybe they're close. And one or two that are bubble states. Yeah. So you can really hold the election in 10 states. And just see what happens. <laughs> okay, that I, I might actually agree with. Ronnie, uh, there's a final nail in the coffin, if you want to call it, for uh, the, Ru- the Russia investigation from the uh, Robert Mueller special prosecutor. The Department of Justice has now dropped the case against this Russian troll farm that they brought up charges against for, what was it called, strategic goal to sow discord in the U.S. political system, something, something, bad against the United States. Now that case, which is interesting because I think they, they, they filed that case and then they actually got a response that I think they didn't expect. And then the case just went nowhere. And I know this is ancient history, the Russia investigation, but for a while that was all everybody was talking about. And here we are, no Russians charged. What do you make of this? I think that is so ancient news. Um, it's important because it, it, it shows that nothing was out there there was concrete and provable. Um, I don't, as Mueller said, he doesn't think any American colluded with any Russian on any of this, uh, but he thinks that some Russians were trying to, of course, affect the U.S. elections. And to that, most everyone I know would say, yeah, <laughs> because the Russians try to, you know, meddle wherever they can. And guess what? So do we. We've been famous for meddling in other people's elections for a really long time. And so it's what nations do. Um, it's we even express easy. preferences for candidates, don't we? Well, uh, as foreign nations. And so that's the difference, right? You're not allowed to take monies from a foreign firm for an election in the United States. That's a clear, bright, illegal line. And there's a reason for that. You don't want foreign nations having some influence on what goes on in your internal politics. Absolutely. But 
Then we turn around and we do it to other people. And so I'm not surprised at all if the Russians were doing this. I'm surprised we're putting a lot of effort into it. Uh, and so I would like to stop it where I see it. Uh, but to say that they did it, I think everybody in the world would go, yeah, they did. But to say any American uh, encouraged it or worked with them, that's kind of the line where I say, no, I don't see it. Mueller didn't see it. Nobody saw it. And unfortunately, nobody cares because it's BC before coronavirus. Certainly. And then uh, just what makes me think of China, because with all that money sloshing around, uh, Chinese money sloshing around, you tell me they're not trying to influence uh, U.S. politics in elections. I do not buy that one second. But for some reason, we didn't hear about that. And I don't know why. I don't the Chinese, I don't know what they're doing. I know that they're, you know, they're using their um, Belt and Road strategy to try and make inroads around the world. They've got their one China policy where they're trying to make everything that are 70 percent of what they consume. They want to make internally by 2025. Mm -hmm. And so they clearly have a bead on how they want to grow and kind of be a superpower in the world over the next decade. That probably took a step back after the Wuhan virus, the coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you want to call it, um, after this uh, flare-up, because other people are looking at them going, seriously, uh, you weren't even truthful with us about how this was going on, and now you have, in a way, allowed the spread of something that has greatly reduced global GDP. Maybe I don't want you here anymore. And so I don't think they're going to be as welcome in some of the places around the world where they've been active. Well, I find that to be good news. I'd uh, love to hear what you all think of that and this sort of final nail in the coffin in the Russia investigation. Rodney, last item for today that I, uh, I touched on is the Supreme Court decision regarding uh, Trump's immigration policy. This was the stay in Mexico policy, which essentially meant uh, you can't really come into the country while your asylum claim is being processed. You have to wait outside the country in Mexico while, while it happens. There were some 60,000 people affected. Uh, curious what you think of this decision, but uh, I certainly think this is a big win for the administration, at least in terms of uh, getting its policy held up. It is. This whole policy is, is it's interesting to me. I've lived in border states a long time. Uh, and what we always saw was young men, right? Single young men typically come across the border um, illegally looking for work, um, do whatever they're going to do. There just weren't that many asylum seekers that showed up. Mm -hmm. The asylum seekers started to show up in the early 2010s, and it was a, a court case, I think it was the Flores case in perhaps 2014, 2015, That's right. where the, um, the court said, hey, you can't hold children for more than 20 days because people started showing up with kids. Well, that opened the floodgates because information flows, right? And so if you are a person in Honduras and your situation is pretty ugly, maybe you got gangs, maybe you're just, you know, don't, don't have a job, whatever it is, and you think, I'm going to apply for asylum, I know that if I go with a child, my child, somebody else's child, I'm going to be released into the United States because they won't allow my child to be, you know, incarcerated, essentially. And so it started this flood of people. It's a really, really recent thing that we had these hundreds of thousands of people showing up on the southern border applying for asylum, and, and we were struggling to do something with them. And so we, we, we kind of worked through that, and when you get what's called the Migrant uh, Protection Protocol, which I think is you know, an Orwellian name, right, because you put them in Mexico where I wouldn't want to be for a long period of time. Right. Um, but what you've really done is tell people who are trying to get here to apply, it will not be easy, the road is long, it will take time. And so you've made it less attractive to show up in the first place. And that's the biggest win because you stop that flow of hundreds of thousands of people showing up on the southern border, overwhelming our facilities and our ability to deal with it. And so from that standpoint, yeah, that's a win.
Uh, it will act as a deterrence. And uh, certainly uh, the idea of not being able to set, the goal is to be able to set foot within the United States. Once you get your foot in there, then you enter a whole different set of protocols about your removal. But being kept out certainly changes the game uh, dramatically. Right. Uh, what, and, and part of it is, um, you know, what, what are the facilities, right? What are you going to do with them here? And so if you just say, hey, live over there, you're not incarcerating them. You're not, you're, you don't have that responsibility for them. But that, that's what the other side argument is, is you're putting them in a place where they're somewhat at risk. And it's like, well, wait a second. Then I've got to assess, what is my, my big protocol here? Am I supposed to be responsible for anyone who knocks at my front door? Not comes in, but just knocks. Certainly. What do you think of this Supreme Court decision? Let me know in the comments below. And what do you think of all the topics these, <laughs> that we covered today? Curious to hear. Become a part of the conversation. I want you all to become informed Americans, and you can do that by subscribing to this channel for more content and going to our site, informedamerican.com. We already highlighted a few stories from the site, and many of them are, if not all of them, are put up by Mr. Rodney Johnson. Uh, so I appreciate you coming here. Rodney, what are you looking at uh, maybe down the road and uh, some of the things you're eyeing on in polit political news and just news around the world? Well, I think we've hit on a lot of it. I'm looking for the uh, therapeutic development uh, for the coronavirus or perhaps a, a greater move toward this malaria drug, this chloroquine or the hydroxychloroquine. Um, I think those are going to be big deals. I think it's going to be a big deal in the markets uh, when this hits. And when we see the unemployment numbers the first week of April that's taken essentially this week, the unemployment uh, survey is taken this week, I think it's going to capture people's attention when it shoots up, I believe, uh, near or over 10%. And so, uh, yeah, we're all going to be taking a deep breath about that. On the political side, I, I wish we would get more engaged on that and really flesh out how things might change if we have a Biden presidency, which is, you know, clearly a potential. I mean, he has, uh, he leads in national polls, and I understand people look at polls and say, well, they don't mean anything, they didn't predict Trump. But there was... There was this idea of people not showing up to the polls uh, for Democrats because everyone assumed Hillary would win, and they really hated the way Bernie was treated by the DNC. I don't know that that repeats. And so if you get higher turnout uh, from Democrats in swing states, then you have a real chance of a Biden presidency, and we should be a lot clearer on what he's going to ask for. Now, if he doesn't have a Congress uh, that is a minimal, meaning they don't flip the Senate and, you know, it remains split or, you know, Republicans retake the House. There's a lot of things you can't do, but we have proven before different presidents that the pen can do a lot. Executive orders will make things change, and uh, it would be a very different looking nation in January of next year if that happened. Absolutely, Ronnie, and I'll be happy to dive into that with you. Hope if you all enjoyed this content, it'd be honored if you would hit the uh, little like button there. And of course, subscribe to this channel. Again, go to Informed American uh, where you get real smart news. For Rodney Johnson, I'm Dave Oakenquist, and this has been Get Informed America. You've been listening to Get Informed America, brought to you by the Informed American Radio Network. Please like and subscribe today in order to get new exclusive weekly episodes. Any questions, thoughts, or comments can be sent directly to info at informedamerican.com. And don't forget to visit informedamerican.com to keep up with real, smart news. Until next time, fight fake news and find common ground. <laughs>